second chapter of Luke's Gospel. Here we have a familiar story, one that we rehearse every year at this time of year. But in Luke's Gospel, what occurs in this chapter is one of two great earth-shattering turning points in the history of this world. On a particular day in the reign of Herod, in a tiny village in Judea, Bethlehem, was born a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord of glory himself. And the world has never been the same since. We aren't even given the name of this infant until he's eight days old in verse 21. And in fact, Mary herself does not even quite know what to make of these events. She treasures them up and ponders them deeply, searching out what they must mean in such a dark world. What does Luke want us to know about the birth of this nameless child? What we will find this morning is that from the womb of Mary has emerged a child who would overturn the order of world history. Because in the days of Caesar Augustus, on a dark night in Bethlehem's manger, lay God himself in human form. This was the birth of God, our Savior. Let's read the first 21 verses of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, 
glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. We introduced in verse 1 to Gaius Octavius, a powerful Roman lord, bestowed with the name Augustus by the Roman Senate 24 years earlier. Gaius Octavius, now known as the Caesar Augustus, had brought an end to the civil war in Rome. And now he ruled Rome as its emperor, as its Caesar. He is one of a series of Roman overlords who dominated the land of Palestine. And perhaps the greatest evil of his rule for the Jews was Roman taxation. Rome was famous for its taxes and for its use of traitors as middlemen to reap the rich rewards of money from the hard-working poor in those regions over which Rome ruled. It was a world of oppression. And in this particular time period, Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that all the world would be registered. He had done much to overhaul the political system in Rome, and that meant redrawing the boundaries for taxation. And this decree of his in verse 1 was probably part of an empire-wide assessment of every region for the purposes of taxation. And in Jewish territory in the land of Palestine, because of God's laws regarding property inheritance, Jewish, Jewish authorities had probably demanded that every Jew return to his own hometown to register. That was the place where his family inheritance lay. And in that way, the land could adequately be accounted for and the tally of taxes owed to Rome be adjusted as needed. And the form of the word registered in verse 5 tells us that this registration was something you had to take upon yourself to do. You were responsible to present yourself willingly before the Roman authorities to be registered and assessed for taxes. These taxes were not collected for the benefit of common society. Instead, they would be taken to Rome to fund her luxury and her lust for power. It was a humiliating journey that every Jew must undertake to his homeland. God had promised this land to their fathers. But every, Jew, every Jew's journey would have reminded them that it didn't really belong to them now. And reconciling those two ideas in their minds that this was God's promised land to them which they did not possess reconciling those two things was not hard for the Jews. Every Jew knew that Rome oppressed her because God had fulfilled his promises to turn his people over to the oppression of Gentiles because of their sin. That was the ultimate reason for Caesar's oppression. It was the ultimate reason for the decree that went out. It was because Israel had sinned. The story moves from the great and grand decree of Caesar Augustus in verse 1 all the way down in verse 7 to a tiny village of Bethlehem. 
A mother has just given birth in the rough surrounds of a stable and her baby lies in a feeding trough for animals. And the contrast could not be more stark between verse 1 and verse 7. What is the connection between Caesar in his palace in Rome and the baby in his palace in Bethlehem? There are two because statements in verses 1 through 7 that tell us why the mother and her husband and the baby are here. One of the statements is at the end of verse 4, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And the other is at the end of verse 7, because there was no place for them in the inn. They are here, this family, in the city of David, because, first of all, the woman's husband is of the house and lineage of David. Caesar's decree has brought him here, and with him, his betrothed, Mary. Why has she come? Well, the answer is clear enough. As a woman, she didn't own land in that system. But the Syrian overlord, Quirinius, who was ruling with Rome's power over Palestine, required that every female older than 12 years of age must be registered and assessed for the purposes of Roman taxation. Mary, as the betrothed of Joseph, is his responsibility now. And so what little bit of land he might have owned in Bethlehem had to cover for both him and his espoused wife, Mary. The Syrians required that even girls as young as 12 contribute their fair share to the taxes of Rome. Mary is pregnant and makes the journey at nearly full term. They arrive in Bethlehem for the registration. And while they are there, she gives birth in verse 7. The birth must have occurred fairly soon after their arrival in Bethlehem, perhaps even on that first evening. And the thing that makes me think that is that the only place for her to give birth is a stable for animals. Surely if they had been there longer than a single night, perhaps Joseph would have been able to acquire more suitable accommodations for his pregnant wife. It's a son who's born, her firstborn. The word firstborn designates him as the heir of the family. This child is not Joseph's. Matthew tells us that. But Luke omits that detail. And as the story reads, we may just as well have thought of Joseph as the father of this son. He is the one to whom will fall all the legal privileges that the father enjoys. He is Joseph's own heir. The child is wrapped in cloth to keep his limbs straight and to provide some sense of security for him as a newborn. He's laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And it's now that we find our second because statement. Why is he here? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Whatever this inn was, perhaps it was a guest room. The word can mean that. The guest room in a family home which was already occupied. Perhaps it was a way station for travelers to spend the night. Whatever this inn was, it was full, and Joseph could find no other accommodations. The decree of the great Lord Caesar Augustus and Joseph's lineage 
and the fullness of the inn have all come together to bring them to this humble place in Bethlehem. And now the child born, the birth of the firstborn son of Mary, occurs in a stable in Bethlehem, and he is wrapped and laid in a manger. Caesar, feasting in splendor half a world away in Rome, must have had no idea of the burden of his decree upon this world over which he ruled. It's not surprising in a world such as this that fervent expectations of salvation ran high. The previous two centuries in Palestine had seen several uprisings fueled by Jewish national drive and religious zeal to be free of the rule of unclean Gentiles. The Jews had very good reasons to hope that they would one day be set free. This was not the first time that Israel had been oppressed by Gentile nations for her sin. As far back as the days of the judges, when she had first entered into this land, the recurring story in the, the book of Judges was that Israel would sin and fall under the domination of the Gentiles around her. But God would send a deliverer to recover her. Even the Babylonian captivity occurring 500 years previous had come to an end. and God had brought his people back from captivity. Throughout the Old Testament, time and again, Yahweh had delivered his people. They had never actually seen him on the field of battle. But the evidence of his deliverance again and again was unmistakable. Yahweh had come down to deliver his people. And scattered throughout Palestine were devout Jews who labored in prayer to God to turn their captivity, to restore Zion to her place as the crown jewel of God's inheritance. Like Daniel of old, they had read in the prophets of a coming golden age of salvation. Yahweh God himself would come down with salvation in his wings. The timing of it all depended upon the arrival of Elijah. Elijah must come before that great day of the Lord would dawn. He would prepare the way for the coming of Yahweh himself, the prophet of Malachi had foretold. And that was exactly the situation that had begun to unfold just 15 months previous to this birth. In Luke chapter 1, a priest of the Lord, Zechariah, of Abijah's division had entered the temple to burn incense at the appointed time. An angel of the Lord had appeared to him, telling him that his, his barren wife would have a son. Your prayers are heard, Zechariah, the angel had said. Your son will prepare the way for the Lord in the power of Elijah. He will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. Zechariah emerged from the temple speechless, but upon his return home, his wife had conceived. And the birth of the child, John, was anything but quiet. All of these things, the scripture tells us in chapter 1, verses 65 and 66, were being talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. And all who, were, who heard them pondered them in their hearts, wondering what this child would be. Zechariah himself had prophesied over the child that he would be the forerunner of Yahweh who was to come. Isaiah 40 had foretold the coming of the Lord. He would be preceded by a voice who would cry in the wilderness, 
to prepare a pathway for the Lord. Zechariah foretells that his son, John, will be that voice. And to further heighten the expectation that John prepares the way for the Lord in chapter 1, verse 80, we find that John matures in the wilderness, exactly where the voice would come from, who would announce the coming of the Lord. It must then be only a matter of time before he appears to Israel. What would it look like when Yahweh came? In the past, Yahweh had never actually appeared upon earth. Instead, he had sent a messenger, a mighty champion. He had filled the man with his spirit to empower him to bring deliverance to his people. When Yahweh came this time, would the sun stand still as in the days of Joshua until Yahweh brought deliverance to Israel? Would a mighty Samson arise to deliver God's people? Would 300 torches in the dead of night bring panic to the invading Romans and cause them to flee as it had with Gideon? This was a world with real reason to suspect that something was going on. God was on the move. And fervent expectations ran high. It was in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should present themselves for registration. The immediate circumstances of the birth of this baby in Bethlehem that evening are actually not very surprising. Under the heavy heel of Rome, it wasn't strange to find a young couple so poor that only an animal stable was available. The baby was born and wrapped in cloths. That was customary. He was laid in a manger. Of course he was. That was the only available bed for him. There's not much to see here in Bethlehem. There's not much that would make the news. But there's actually more here than meets the eye initially. And Luke has structured the first seven verses to make that point. The first thing that we must notice in verses 1 through 7 is that the circumstances are low. Just as have been the circumstances of God's people throughout their history. Israel's God, unlike the foreign gods of the nations, declares that he... The God who inhabits eternity dwells with the lowly. This is just the corner of the world where God is most likely to appear. With the lowly. At the depths of despair and poverty. That is where God dwells. And Luke tells us that this is the city of David. The city of the shepherd boy, a lowly shepherd boy, the youngest of Jesse's clan, nearly forgotten in the lineup when Samuel comes to seek the next king of Israel. But David, exalted by God's own choice. That one, the young shepherd, God had said, is my chosen one who will reign over my people Israel. From the shepherd's staff, to the scepter and the crown, God raised up lowly David to sit upon Israel's throne. Forever, God had said. Forever. 
That was a promise that Joseph, Mary's husband, must have toyed with in his mind many times. He knew his lineage. He knew his house. Joseph, too, is of the lineage and house of David. Forever, he had read in 2 Samuel. One of David's descendants seated on his throne forever. Joseph of the house and lineage of David. A descendant of David forever. David's house had been torn down, but Amos had foretold God's plan to raise up again the fallen booth of David. God had promised to restore the fortunes of Israel. The ruined cities of Israel would be rebuilt and inhabited and their vineyards would fill once again the cups of Israel with joy and plenty under the reign of David, who would reign forever. Israel itself would be planted under the shadow of David's son, never again to be uprooted and driven out of the land again. Amos 9 verses 11 through 15. Joseph is David's son in David's city. If David could be raised up to the throne from his humble place as a shepherd, what of Joseph? In a stable, under the heel of Rome, a newborn son, the heir of Joseph, Mary's firstborn, the heir of the son of David. And then thirdly, we must notice verse 8, the fields surrounding Bethlehem. Shepherds sit in the darkness, keeping watch over their flocks. Shepherds in Bethlehem have always gone together ever since the days of David. David himself had kept watch over, the sh over sheep on these very hillsides centuries ago. That was before he was crowned king. God had taken him from the sheepfolds and raised him up to be the king over his people. And these shepherds in Bethlehem that night, they too are keeping watch over sheep. Bethlehem lay within a day's walk of Jerusalem. And according to the tradition of the rabbis of the day, all sheep raised within a day's walk of Jerusalem were destined for sacrifice. Shepherds raising lambs in the shadow of the temple with its blood-stained altar. Lambs destined for death under the curse of God. Shepherds sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. It's a situation, verse 79, that parallels the situation of all of Israel. For John runs ahead of one who comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Bethlehem, surrounded by shepherds, Mary's son is born. Not far away from this stable, in the same region, Luke tells us, is a simple shepherd's camp. A small fire burns because the night is crisp. It's cold in the winter in Bethlehem. The sheep have bedded down for the night. The shepherds are taking their turns, sitting up on that wooden platform they had erected to be able to see all the way to the edges of the flock. They are keeping watch for predators, for straying sheep. 
If the present-day Shepherd's Hill near Bethlehem is where they were located, then they're about two miles from Bethlehem itself in the quiet and darkness of the night. But it's then that a blaze of light pierces through the night. An angel stands near them. They crouch low in fear, shielding their eyes from the sudden brightness. The angel has come to tell them one thing. Do not fear. This is the heart of his message. And he gives them two reasons in verse 10 that they ought not fear. The first is that he brings them good news and not evil. And the second is that a child has been born in Bethlehem. The heavens peel back. The shepherds see what they've never seen before. A myriad of heavenly beings facing the throne of God and glorifying and praising Him. The heavenly curtains fall back into place again. And once again the world is plunged into darkness. As their eyes begin to adjust to the darkness again, they scramble to their feet. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has made known to us, they say to one another. What thing? What had the Lord made known unto them? There are several clues that are given to us about what is going on here. First, I want you to compare verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 20. And you can do this at length later on. But if you do, you will notice that all the details of the story of his birth in verses 1 through 7 are actually only given to us to prepare us for what happens in the fields with the shepherds. For an example, as we read through verses 1 through 7, we see that it's simply the background for what the angels will announce. For example, the details that he is born in Bethlehem, that he's wrapped in cloths, that he's laid in a manger, is merely to set us up for the sign that the angels will give. It's what happens with the shepherds in the fields then that is the real point of the story. Second, notice the lines that this incident draws. Can you picture the scene in your mind as a painting? Now draw some lines between the characters. Beginning in the stable in Bethlehem, we could draw a very horizontal line from that manger to the shepherds. They inhabit the same world. Luke tells us they are in the same region. It's dark. It's a world where we live as well. The angel comes down from heaven, bringing with him a blaze of light. That's the way that it is beyond the darkness of that star-studded curtain of the sky at night. There is light. It's a world we all wish we could come to. A world above the death and darkness of this world that we inhabit. From the shepherds we could draw a line that extends sharply upward to that angelic company. Extending higher and higher into that world where the angels sing praises to God. But notice how the end of the story comes together. That line that went so high up into the heavens, we now can draw sharply back down again to the shepherds. The end of the story falls back to this world again. The line that we drew extending upward so sharply now must be drawn sharply down again into the darkness left by the retreating angelic company. For a brief moment... 
a being from that other world has stood upon this earth. And for a briefer moment still, the earth has gazed into the heavens to see the angelic company giving glory and praise to God for this moment. It's a kiss of hope that would have vanished just as quickly if it had not been for the announcement that the angels made. Do not fear. Today, a child has been born to you. Now, it's Mary who's just endured the near-death experience of childbirth, but the angels say the child was not born to her. She has brought him forth, but the child is born to you, the shepherds who inhabit the same region. The news of this child's birth, the angel says, is good news. It's good news for all the people, the angel says. It's surprising that at this point no one knows the name of this child. But the angels do tell us something about him. It's the reason the birth of this child is good news. This child born in the city of David, they tell us, verse 10 and 11, is a savior. It was the birth of a savior. Born at midnight in a tiny village in southern Palestine, in a region inhabited by a poor virgin, a betrothed, and shepherds. Born into this sad world. We may draw a line from Mary to the shepherds, to ourselves, to this Savior. For he now inhabits the stable, the manger in Bethlehem, in the same region, a region of darkness, a region of oppression, in the shadow of death. This is the birth of a Savior for all the peoples. But what kind of a Savior is he? There's two words the angels give to us about this Savior. He is a Savior, first of all, who is Christ. That's a remarkable word. It's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of individuals upon whom the Holy Spirit has been poured out with power and grace to enable that one to perform some special work for the sake of God's people upon this earth. It was a way of God entering into this world to bring salvation as his spirit fell upon a man who would then deliver God's people. The spirit of God would empower him to bring salvation and deliverance to his own. But actually, the statement here that he is a Messiah, a Christ, is not actually all that remarkable. Every Savior God ever sent to His people in the Old Testament came with a measure of the Spirit upon Him to empower Him to fulfill His mission. There were many Messiahs in the Old Testament, many Christs. David, Samson, Azariah, Amasai, Jephthah. This Savior for Israel, that He is a Messiah, is actually not a surprise. There's two things about this birth, though, that differ dramatically from the birth of any other Messiah in the Old Testament. The first is that this birth was announced by angelic messengers. 
the birth of David himself, born in the city of David, born to be a spirit-anointed deliverer and king of God's people, was accompanied with no angelic announcement. I tend to think that the angelic announcement occurred at the birth of this infant because there was no other thing different about this birth than the birth of any other infant in that region of the world. And had the angels not announced the birth, it would never have been known that it occurred. The angelic announcement was necessary in this circumstance because the angels give us one more word to describe what kind of Savior has appeared in Bethlehem's manger. Indeed, in the original language, it's a word that's only six letters long, one of the shortest in the text. It must have struck the shepherds dumb to hear it that night. It is the very heart of the matter that Mary treasured up in her heart. Take this word out of the angel's announcement and suddenly there is no reason for the accompanying chorus singing praise to God. There's no reason for haste and there's no reason for wonder. Because the shepherds say, For to you this day there is born in David's city a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord. The Lord himself has come down. Every Jew familiar with the books of Moses and the prophets and the writings knew that word. Kurios, Yahweh himself. Here is the second word the angels tell us about this Savior. Unto you is born the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Sinai, the God of Noah's flood. The great God who had flung every star that studded the night sky into place by his breath. Born, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. To you is born a Savior, the Lord. This was the hope of the entire Old Testament. Everything looked forward to the coming of the Lord. For what other Savior could there be? There is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me, says Yahweh. So turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 49 verse 26. You shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Throughout the Old Testament there had been many messiahs, but there had only ever been one Savior. It was Yahweh himself. But throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh had only ever acted through, uh, through human beings. He had sent human beings to deliver his people. Yahweh himself had never actually drawn near to his people in their grief. He had never yet entered into their oppression. He had never slept where they sleep. Now, to you is born a Savior, the Lord. Yahweh, born to you. God has come down to earth to dwell amongst men. He has come down to save. He has entered into this world in a lowly stable. He dwells not on high, but with the lowly. Yahweh, in our human flesh. He has so identified himself with us that had the angels not announced it, no one would have even known that this baby that had come down 
was the Lord. We would have had no idea that God himself lay in the manger in Bethlehem. This birth was so much like the other births in Bethlehem. Based upon all that we saw in verses 1 through 7, we might have thought that David's heir had been born, a man to sit on David's throne. But here in the birth of this baby, we find that two worlds have actually become one. They have become one in the birth of this infant. One world inhabited by a lowly virgin in a cattle stall, a region inhabited by earthly shepherds tending sheep, a world of taxes and swaddling cloths in a manger, a world that lay in deep darkness and sin and death. But another world inhabited by myriads of angels, a world of splendor and joy. It was a world that would have made the splendor of Caesar's luxury seem like child's play. The center of it all was a throne, and on that throne a being, the Lord himself, the glory of that other world all radiating from and stimulated by the splendor of the one who sat upon the throne. If this world was to take on any character of that one, the one whose being energized and animated the joy and light of that world must descend into this. He must step down. It would mean uniting in himself the weight of this world and the splendor of that one. But today, the angels say, to you is born in human form, wrapped now in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger in Bethlehem's stable, the Lord of glory himself, the being around whom that world of light revolves. Why did he come down? There are two reasons we find in verse 14. In the highest heaven, to God be glory. And on earth, to those with whom he is pleased, be peace. On earth, to men, be peace. To you is born a savior descending into the night of this world for you to bring peace to men upon earth. He brings the life of heaven to earth, to men. I want you to compare now verses 13 and 14 with verse 20. Angels, a multitude, praising God and giving glory to God in the highest. And verse 20, the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. The angels praising God and saying, glory be to the God of heaven. The shepherds scurrying to Bethlehem. They see, they return, glorifying and praising the God of highest heaven. The song of heaven has now become the song of of earth. The angels glorifying and praising God in the highest heaven. And now the shepherds pick up that song, giving glory and praise to God. What will be the effect of this descent of the Lord to earth from heaven? Far from degrading his glory and stepping down, now there is glory to God in the height of heaven, and now there is glory to God upon the earth in the song of the shepherds. Descent to this world has brought about glory in both worlds. How? 
It was as the shepherds saw what God made known to them. The Lord had made known to them these things. Let us now go and see, they say. They go, they see, and they return glorifying and praising God. The shepherds had heard the angels' proclamation to them. They go and see, and now they make known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They didn't go and give a report of what they saw. They went and gave a report of the announcement that they had heard. To you is born in David's city a Savior, a Messiah, wrapped in swaddling cloths, the Lord of heaven come down to us. That's what the shepherds made known. The putting together of these two worlds, the world of swaddling cloths, the world of the manger, the world of the Lord of glory come down. The shepherds made that statement known. And this means then, if you look with me at verses 17 and 20, verse 17 is the shepherds making it known Verse 20 is the shepherds giving glory and praise to God. And that means that verses 18 and 19, both of the groups in verses 18 and 19, are responding to the shepherds' announcement. All they who heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary treasures up all the... What what things? The announcement the shepherds had made. Mary hears what the angels had said to the shepherds through their own mouths. She ponders those things in her heart. Again and again, her mind dives deep down into the depths of what the angels had said. The word wondered in verse 18 is actually a word of disbelief. All who heard it wondered at those things that were told them by the shepherds. How could this be? It cannot be. God come down to Bethlehem's major. All who heard the events from the shepherds dismissed them. There were no faithful disciples of this baby until he reached manhood. Where are all the people flocking to him if this was the birth of Yahweh himself? The answer to that is no one believed. No one believed. They wondered at what the shepherds said, but they did not receive and believe it. No one hovered above the manger except the shepherds, and for 30 years he will grow up in insignificance. If the angels had not announced the birth of God in Bethlehem, the significance of the moment would never have been known. Mary's own pondering of these things centers also on the shepherds' retelling of the announcement of the angels. Mary treasures them up in her heart pondering them again and again, going over to you this day in the city of David, a Savior born, wrapped in cloths, the Lord lying in a manger. How do these things fit together? Mary must have pondered and pondered and pondered with no answer. She never does quite come to understand, but she wants to. She ponders these things that the shepherds have said. And the shepherds, verse 20, then return to their flocks, glorifying and giving praise to God for what they have heard and seen. It all occurred just as the angels had said. 
And at the end of the eight days, the child, verse 21, is named Jesus. Why Jesus? Matthew tells us he was called Jesus because of what the name means. Luke tells us he was named Jesus because it was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And in that is a stunning conclusion to this story, making the point to us once again. Luke says that he was called Jesus because it was the name given to him by the angel before he was born. Notice what verse 21 says. Mary called him Jesus, the name called is the Greek word. It's the same as the word called by Mary. Mary is simply calling him by the name the angel called him before he was born. This drives home to us the point once more. A poor virgin mother, imagine this, appearing before the priest to have her eight-day-old son circumcised. What would you like to call the child, ma'am? Jesus. Because that is the name that the angel gave to me before he was even conceived in the womb. It's the name the angel gave me to call him. Angel? What angel? Who is this child, the priest must have wondered. In this baby, heaven has come down to this earth. The Lord has descended. He has taken up residence under the oppression and in the midst of this fallen world. It is the dawn of the sunrise at midnight from on high, shining down upon lowly shepherds. It produces among men the same response the angels gave of glory and praise to God. Heaven and earth in the birth of this child are becoming one. The God who stood at a distance for so long has drawn near. Both the angels and the shepherds respond with glory and praise to God. Here then in the song of the angels and in the song of the shepherds, here is a hint that earth will one day be lifted up to heaven by the coming of this baby. Earth will reach up to take hold of heaven's own praise. The shepherds see into heaven itself to see the angels of God praising him and they too respond giving glory to God. The shepherds respond to the angel's announcement of the birth of this child and Mary too responds to the angel's announcement of the name. Heaven has come down to this world because heaven's Lord has entered into this world. I think that Luke 2 is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy beginning in verse 77 of, verse, of chapter 1. Actually, we'll begin in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise has visited us from on high to give light to those shepherds like us who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so I think the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is so appropriate. I won't sing it. O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet, 
In thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I want you to look at one more phrase, and then we will pray. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth may there be peace among those with whom he is pleased. Is he pleased with you? If not, there is no peace for you in the birth of this child. And Simeon will prophesy that later in the chapter, that he will come as a sword, not as peace. Swords and peace never go together. But in this child, there has come peace to this world and a sword for those with whom he is not pleased. How does one enter into God's good pleasure, his good grace? How do you become one with whom he is well pleased? And Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. As we look upon the manger, the birth of God in human flesh, for you, that's the part that's difficult to grasp. For me, because of my great need. Embracing what God says about that by faith. About me by faith. That he has come for me. It is this faith by which we enter into God's good pleasure and the peace that he has come to bring becomes ours. Lord God, thank you for sending down to us your Son in human flesh so that we might receive peace upon this earth. Our weeks are anything but peace most of the time, Lord. We labor in deep darkness under the shadow of death. And I pray that you would grant us faith to see in Bethlehem's manger, what no other man would have seen except for the angel's announcement that this was God come down to us in human flesh. Grant us faith to receive the implications of that, that we are the ones who sit in the shadow of death under the oppression of sin and death. May we find in Christ the peace that we need that heaven and earth may be one. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake.